Well, when it comes to uh, really knowing someone, it's safe to say we really know a person until we uh, see them walk through something fairly difficult. I remember being in a class with a professor who was speaking to us about uh, pastoral ministry in general, and uh, he'd been in pastoral ministry for over 40 years, and he, he was taking questions, and one of the students in the class, they asked him, uh, how old uh, a person should be, how old should a man be before he can become an elder in the church? You know, is there an age limit? So, so should he be 29 or 35 or, or 65? How, how should that look? And and, uh, and knowing that there's no direct uh, biblical word on the matter, there's plenty of, of criteria there, but there's no direct biblical word on the matter, the professor responded with what seemed like one of the most wise answers I've ever heard to that question, and he said this. He said, the maturity of an individual you're considering for pastoral ministry should come into question only after you've watched them walk through something very significant in terms of a trial in their life. So, so if you have, for example, he, he was saying, a, a younger man, maybe 30, uh, who's, who's uh, considering pastoral ministry, you need to be able to see them go through something really hard and watch how they're either faithful or, or spinning out in those circumstances, and that will tell you a great deal about their maturity level and, and even whether or not they, could, they can function well in pastoral ministry. And I thought at the time that that was such a wise word on a matter that the Scripture is not exactly clear on in terms of age, but it does speak to the maturity of a person, and it speaks to how well we can know somebody. Uh, we've probably had the experiences of thinking that we know somebody really well, only to have them go through a period of extraordinary difficulty in which their true colors come out, and maybe it's not what we expected that we expected sturdiness, and instead, in the context of trials, uh, maybe, they, maybe they went in another direction. Their faith faltered. They didn't trust like they seemed to be uh, in, a, in a position to, to regularly trust. Things went in a different direction. And we, and we learn those things about people in trials. We learn those things about our own hearts during times that are trying. And as we come to this point in 1 Samuel, uh, we're in a place where there is a question mark in our minds as the readers uh, about David himself. Now, now, we know more about the heart condition of David at this point in the narrative because we've kind of cheated. We, we took a couple weeks and we went and we, we read David's journal entries, if you like. We read those psalms, so we know where David's heart has been in the context of the trials that he's facing. But if we're just reading through 1 Samuel, without jumping over and reading those psalms just yet, we would have a question in our mind regarding where David's heart is really at. Because so far, up until chapter 19 at least, we've primarily known David as a, as a hero on the battlefield. We've primarily known David as a, as a welcomed presence in Saul's court as a musician. Uh, David, David's shown bravery, to be sure. He's, he's been out and, and, and engaged in those battle victories, but he has hasn't really been pressed in a prolonged suffering kind of way as we get to the to chapter 19, which is really the beginning of all these episodes. Uh, but, but then starting in chapter 19, we see Saul is out to kill David with this new and unchecked aggression. Saul knows that David is a threat to his throne, so Saul wants David dead. He's been going after David in, in a hard way, and David now finds himself in the thick of things. He's, he's had to flee his own home. He's had to flee from where his wife is. Uh, David's had to flee from the presence of his best friend Jonathan. Uh, no doubt that was extremely painful for them. Uh, and then in chapter 21, we, we saw at the beginning that he's having to beg for food from Abiathar the priest. What we just read, David had fled to Gath, thinking maybe in the Philistine territory I can find some safety. But instead, uh, he's extremely fearful as they recognize who he is. Um, so, so, 
So in this very short time period, David's gone from a relatively comfortable and even uh, kind of laudable existence. David has gone way down into this season of trial. So the pressure is on. And, and we have to wonder, what is David going to be like? There's a, there's a tension with that question as the, as the narrative is building. And, and we have that question primarily because we reflect on what Saul proved to be like under pressure. As we think about the history of Israel's monarchy, beginning with Saul, Saul proved to be a, a horrific king under pressure. You remember, you remember when the battle was on back in chapter 14, he, he was there sitting under a pomegranate tree while his troops were fighting. So Saul was a disaster in that way. When, when Saul's position was threatened, he was actually ready to kill his own son with a spear back in chapter 20. Uh, Saul ultimately rejects the word of the Lord, all those kinds of things. Under pressure, the truth of Saul's heart is very much revealed. He is not somebody who's going to be faithful, who's going to be trustworthy, who's ultimately going to be obedient to the word of the Lord, preserving, preserving the people of God. We found that out about Saul as he faced times of, of pressure. So now, we have this question as the reader, how about David? What's David going to be like? Because now the pressure's on for David. He's been anointed by Samuel as king. David is, is God's chosen king to replace Saul. But things aren't looking up at the moment. David is far from the throne room of Israel. Things only seem to be looking, looking worse. And we want to know, what is God's anointed king really going to be like? Are his, are his true colors going to show? Uh, what, is, what, is, what is going to happen here? And in these first five verses of chapter 22, we have a clarifying answer to that question. Because, because here in these few verses, we have a great deal about God's anointed king revealed to us. And, and as we consider the truth that's here, as, as we know, we're, we're compelled by these verses to look forward. And maybe even as we were reading it, you could, you, could, you, could, you could have that sense about you that these verses are not only about David, but they're compelling us, as all the Old Testament does, to look forward to the fullness of what's true in God's King and the ultimate King in the Lord Jesus. And we're always reminding ourselves as we're studying the Bible that things are taking us in that direction. We're studying David's life, but even David's life itself serves, as, as Paul will use language in Colossians, as the shadow of the substance, the substance being Christ. As we come through these Old Testament passages, we're reminded that there's a finger constantly pointing to Jesus, not least of all, through the royal line of David. And so we come to this and we have this question, what is God's king going to be like? And in these five verses, we have actually an amazing answer to that question, a very encouraging answer to that question. And our answers there are not left there in the context of the Judean wilderness with David and his men in the cave of Adullam. The answers there ultimately leave us looking forward to Jesus and reflecting on what's true about God's ultimate king. And so, and so we find an encouraging word in this today in that, in that hardships have a way of making clear what a person is really like. And in this passage, we see something clearly about David ultimately pointing us to clear and wonderful truths about Jesus himself. And in, and in so doing, we can, we can be greatly encouraged uh, as, as, we, as we study all of this. So, so what we'll do is we'll look at this passage together. If you haven't turned there yet, you can. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, the first five verses. And, um, and we're going to take this under, under uh, four different headings as we, as we look at this, uh, especially as we try to answer our question. So what, what is God's anointed king really like? The, the first thing we're going to say, uh, the verses make clear, that God's anointed king is familiar. We could use a number of words here. God's anointed king is familiar with affliction. That's what he's like. God's anointed king maybe is familiar with darkness. That, that would better capture what's going on here, first of all. 
And, and so this is highlighted. If you look at the very first part of, of verse 1, God's king is familiar with the darkness. We see this in verse 1 where we read that David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. Now, the cave of Adullam is, is about 10 miles east of Gath. It's almost uh, directly in between Gath and David's hometown of Bethlehem. So that's where, that's where these, this, this cave country is. Um, and, it, and it's hilly, hilly country in the territory of Judah. Um, and in verse 1, we read that David left Gath, which is actually that word escape in Hebrew. So David is, is still on the run here. Not now, though, he's fleeing from his, his Philistine captors. So he's on the run out of, Philistine, out, out of the Philistine territory, back into the Judean territory, where he's also there on the run from King Saul himself. So this is very tumultuous for David. We understand the pressure that he's under. And, and as he's on the run, he comes to this cave. He escapes to this, this cave. And, when, and as we read that, at first it doesn't sound so bad. And in, in fact, it is worth noting uh, that some of the caves in this area are so big that uh, you, you, could, you could put a full-court gym in them. These, these are big caves, which helps make sense of the fact that we also read here that 400 people, pretty soon it's going to be 600 people, have gathered with David there. So these are no small little, small little hidey holes that David is escaping to. The caves are massive. And, and in knowing that, it might not sound so bad that, that David had found, has found this place of shelter. Uh, we're glad for him. Except that if we were hearing this with ears that were uh, maybe tuned to the Hebrew context, the ancient Near East culture, if we were reading this, we would hear something a little bit different uh, than an encouragement as we recognize that David is now hiding out in a cave. Uh, because while it seems like a cave might be telling us something sort of happy, like we're glad David found shelter, uh, instead, cave is a much more ominous image. Um, caves are shelters, but they're not happy shelters. They're dark, as we think about them in the context of, 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 of what's being communicated here. Uh, because quite literally in this culture, again, if we could put ourselves in the context of a, of a first reader of, of Samuel, in this culture... A cave wasn't a, a welcoming shelter in the midst of a rainstorm or something like that. In this culture, a cave is, is a tomb. Caves are where people would bury their dead. And, and the association of death and dread with caves is actually reflected through the biblical record. So, so for example, you remember what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord rescued Lot and his daughters out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but in the context of the world seeming to be on fire from heaven, where do... Where do, where do uh, uh, Lot and his daughters escape to, if you remember the story. Well, they escape to this cave. They think they're going to go to Zoar, this nice little town. Everything's going to be okay. Fire comes down from heaven. They go to the cave. It's, it's, this, it's this place that reflects dread and destruction going on all around them. And then in like 1 Kings 19, when Elijah the prophet, you remember he was so discouraged. He wanted the Lord to take his life. And after the Lord tells him to take a nap and have some food, so he gets a little bit of strength, He's still in this discouraged position. Where does Elijah go when he finally gets the strength to move? Well, he goes to a cave. He goes to a cave, his place of death. He's asking the Lord to take his life. And then, and then even in the New Testament, where do we find the, the garrison man possessed by thousands of demons? You remember that story from Mark chapter 5? He's, he's consumed by the evil one's destructive forces. And where is he living in Mark chapter 5? Well, he were told that he's among the tombs in the mountains. What are tombs and mountains? Caves. Where the demon-possessed man is living. So, so this chapter begins, and we read that David escaped, and we're glad, we're excited about that. And then we read that he fled to a cave. 
And we're not left thinking that that's so nice for David that he got out of the rain. No, instead, we're, we're, we're affected by the fact that this one who is promised kingship and royalty and high position over all of God's people, we're affected by the fact that, that, that this, this king of God's choosing is not first of all on a throne, but he's in this death cavern. Well, what is God's king really like? Remember, trials have a way of revealing well, what's most true about us. What is God's king really like? Well, at the very least, we have to read this and say that God's king is very well acquainted with the darkness. That's what he's like. He's not just enjoyed the glories of the throne. He's dwelt in death's shadows. And that experience of David is actually reflected in the way he writes. It's, it's reflected in his poetry. David's not a silver spoon in my mouth since I was little and now I'm on the throne. He, that, that's not David's situation at all. David was a sufferer. Some of, uh, some of you who we've talked about this who are professional counselors, uh, you know these things, but, but you've told me that when it comes to applying to a counseling program, one of the questions uh, that you're asked is, is to list a, 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 a whole bunch of different feeling words. One of you was telling me about that, I forget who. We had to list a number of different feeling words, and while that might not sound uh, like something some of us are, would like to involve ourselves with, you know, bad, good, all those feeling words that we know, uh, well, 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 some of us might not like to involve ourselves in that. It's actually a very good exercise because if a person is going to be useful to another person, they have to have a vocabulary for pain, don't they? They have to be able to talk about these things that, that run deep in us. And, and what's true about God's king is he has a vocabulary for pain because he knows the dark places. So even in Psalm 34 that we looked at last week, David could speak about a sense of looming dread. And he spoke about that experientially. He could speak about crying out in trouble. He could speak about needing refuge. He could speak about being hungry, brokenhearted, crushed in spirit, all of these kinds of things. He could do that because when it comes to knowing what God's king is really like, we see in a text like this that God's king knows the darkness. He's been in the cave. He's been in that shadowy place where death looms. God's king is one who can identify with grim circumstances of life. He can identify with sorrow. And of course, this points us forward directly to the Lord Jesus and what's true about Jesus. This is what we expect from God's ultimate king, which is something the book of Hebrews makes clear about Jesus. In the, in the Jesus, God the Son, He enters into this sin-torn world, doesn't He? And He takes humanity to Himself. And why does He do that? Well, not just to die and rise, but he does that first to live and know experientially the reality of what it means to be human. In order to identify with us as our Savior King, Jesus entered the darkness of our human experience. He entered this world of the ruptured by our sin, and he suffered in the darkness. He, he wept at the death of his friend. He was angry at injustice. He was abandoned by those who should have been loyal to them. Ultimately, he was put to death as an innocent man. He was murdered. Before Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the glories of heaven's throne, Jesus knew the gloomy cave conditions, if we can call it that. He knew the woe of this world. Very literally, he was buried in a cave, wasn't he? So, so this is who our king is. Je Jesus is the one who not only resides now in the glory and bliss of his majestic royalty, he's also the one who knows the pain. He's experienced the grim reality of a world torn by sin. And we need to remind ourselves of that truth with consistency. Because in Jesus, we don't have one who's unable to identify with us in our weakness, Hebrews tells us, do we? But instead, we have one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet he's without sin. 
In other words, Jesus knows the full press of darkness's power. And so rather than being removed from the pressures we face, he can identify with us. And not just that, but he's the one equipped to extend the mercy we need uh, from his unlimited storehouses of grace in our time of need. But, but this, is, this is what God's king is like. He's familiar with the darkness. And so we need to understand this in our relationship with the risen Christ. When we pray, when we, when we seek to rest in Jesus, even as we've been talking about in the service so far today, when we seek to rest in Jesus, we rest in one who can identify with the things we experience. He's not one who doesn't know what it's like to feel the things we feel. He knows what it's like and more to experience the things that we're going through. He's felt the full force of temptation. We've never felt that. We, we, we fold when the full force of those things comes to us. Jesus felt, has felt the full force, the heavy darkness, and he stood. He knows these kinds of pressures. He's been in the cave. And so what is God's king like? Well, as we ultimately look to Jesus, we can say that he, he's familiar with the darkness. He knows what it is to suffer, to be downcast, to be abandoned, all of those kinds of things. And it's not just uh, that God's king knows, uh, knows the darkness, but as we go on here, we also see God's king provides uh, refuge for the afflicted. He's a refuge for the afflicted, which, which we see uh, as, we, as we get uh, through verse 1 and into verse 2. So let me, let me just read that again so we, we hear what's being said here. David leaves Gath. He escapes from Gath, takes refuge in the cave of Adullam. Uh, when David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, now listen to this, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Uh, now, now, we'll talk more about David's brothers and, and family coming, coming to him there. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, but just right here, look at who's gathering with David. What, what's God's anointed king really like? Is, is God's king uh, somebody that attracts the attractive? He's not, is he? Is, is God's anointed king there for the one who's puffed up and high up and cleaned up, the upper echelon of society? Is that who's coming around this king? No. No, verse 2. In fact, verse 2, I'm going to read it for you uh, in a little bit more of a wooden translation from the Hebrew, but, but this helps get the emphasis, and I think, I think you'll see what I mean. Let me read verse 2, more wooden translation from the Hebrew, but, but it goes like this. And gathering together with him, listen to the repetition, were all men in distress... And all men in debt, and literally all men who were bitter of soul. All men in distress, and all men in debt, and all men who were bitter of soul. So, so, so David is back in Israelite territory, and who's coming out to him? Who's taking refuge with David? Well, all these outcasts, all these people who are afflicted, all these who know the depths of pain themselves and aren't in a place of ease. These 400 people, however many there are, they, they aren't even in a place of pretending to be at ease. These are people in a dire condition, which, which, is, which is reflected even in the way this is described. We have to love, love the Hebrew there, bitter of soul. Did you know what it is to be bitter of soul, to find yourself in a place where it just feels torn up on the inside and you can't quite pull yourself out of it? There's just that sourness that is existing in your heart. These are the kind of people who are gathering there with God's king. So what's God's king really like? Well, he's the one who, who has the afflicted gathering around him. Fast forward, and what do we find the gospel writers speaking about in the ministry of Jesus? Well, we find Mark saying things like, when evening came after the sun had set. So just to make sure you know it's dark. When evening came, after the sun had set, context of darkness, what does Mark tell us? They brought to Jesus all those who were sick and demon-possessed. 
All the needy people are gathering to Jesus. Or Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus is at someone's house for a meal. And who's at the table with Jesus? Who's gathered with him? Well, Matthew tells us many tax collectors and sinners. Not just a couple. Many tax collectors and sinners were with him. So a whole bunch of crooked folks of the day and others who were notably unrighteous. Those were the ones in Jesus' company. What's God's king really like? Is he, is he out to get all the people whose lives smell the freshest and who match all the social expectations of the day? No, who's gathering around God's king? The needy people, the lost people, the hurting people, those who obviously feel their need, those who have reached the accurate conclusion that they just don't, don't quite frankly belong anywhere else. Right? And we could speak about this at, at great length, but let's just make a couple points of application on this. Number one, just how glorious is it that the prerequisite to come and join God's king's group is our neediness? That's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful gospel truth we have to have way down in our heart. I wonder if this morning you've recently been concerned that your neediness is something that might exclude you from being part of the king's people. A passage like this, we read it in Mark and Matthew, all of those places. Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians. Remember what he says to them? Not many of you were anything special. These passages, they make it very clear that our weakness, our neediness, the fact that, that there may be so many reasons we just don't seem to belong in the world around us, even our bitterness of soul, those are indicators not of our exclusion from the king's people, but instead those are realities that are, that are encouraging our inclusion, coming to him. Right? Jesus didn't come for those who think they had it all together. He came for the sick, he tells us. And then along those lines, there's, there's something else just for us to think about, and we, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of this as a, as a church. We need to remind ourselves that this is exactly who we, who we are as a local church. Right? We're a place for the struggling and sorrowful and broken-spirited and faint-hearted to gather with Jesus. That's what we are as a local church. For those in trouble, for those in debt, this is an important word for us. And it's important to say that because just in so much literature, and maybe it's just the reading, of I don't know, in so much literature, general talking, all the, the trying to market the church in our day, right? The examples even of, of so many shiny and, and Instagram-y kind of ministry things. It can seem like the church is such a cleaned up and glistening place. But that's total garbage. We know because we're here. Right? We're a place where people are being made new by the risen Lord Jesus. That's true. But that's only because we're a place of, of being a refuge for the needy. <coughs> for, those, for those who see their need to gather with the king who can identify with us in our sorrow and bring hope, that, that's who we are as the church. So, so, so for the ones who, who have the scars and the debt and the questions and the loneliness and the bitterness, all of, those, all of those kinds of things, we need to be able to say and we need to be able to take comfort in the fact that being with King Jesus' people is exactly the place for us. So what's God's king really like? Well, he's, he's a king who's, who's familiar with the darkness, and he's a king who proves to be a refuge for the afflicted. What a comfort that is. And then as we go on, we see that this is a king who also protects his own. He protects his own. So back in the end of verse 1, now we saw how David's uh, immediate family came from Bethlehem and gathered with him at Adullam. Um, and if we're remembering the story, that, that, that's, that's a little odd especially the mention of David's brothers gathering with him. Because last we heard of David's brothers, they were kind of jerks to David. Do you remember that? 
How they, they hassled him when he came to the battlefield in the Goliath episode. They weren't kind. Even though they, they had been present to witness David's secret anointing from Samuel, they knew who God had said David was. And, and even though the brothers knew David was God's choice king, they didn't treat him, they didn't treat him well. They, they'd been rotten to David. But now here they are gathering with David. And, and we, can, we can put together the, the regular reasons why. Obviously, his brothers were needy too. No, no doubt they were well aware of Saul's ruthlessness. If he was willing to throw a spear at his own son, certainly he'd be very happy to take out some of David's family members. Right? He hated David. And then, then we can also tell from the next chapter, and then we have a flashback episode in 2 Samuel chapter 23 uh, to this season, that, that the Philistines were very active in fighting in the area. So, so David may have gotten out of Gath, but the, the Philistines on the local front were still, uh, were still very real in terms of a threat. So there's danger all around. Remember, we're only, we're only about 10 miles from David's hometown there in the cave. David's brothers come to him. They're looking, they're looking for refuge themselves. And amazingly, instead of David rejecting his brothers who had been nasty toward him, his brothers were accepted in the gathering in there in verse 1. Which, which, is, which is something, and it so rings with the tone of the Joseph story, doesn't it? Joseph's brothers coming to Egypt, finding relief from the famine. Joseph embraces them instead of rejecting them. Uh, there's, there's so much of that here, which is a whole other point that I'm trying to, to not go too long in the sermon, but that's a whole other thing to recognize what's going on there with David having his brothers come in, because to be against God's king, we need to see in a section like this, is never the final word for someone if, if, if they flee to him. And we just need to note that here. They've been nasty toward David. Here they're fleeing to him and they're accepted by him. It can very much be a reality in somebody's life that they say, I've been, I've been so contrary to God, there's no room for me there. There's no way he'd have me now. That is a non-truth. Right? Flee to Christ, he will have you. Just as David here accepts those who once mocked him. Uh, so too, uh, we see that, that wonderful picture that's re- represented here. But, but in this, David accepts his brothers, his, his whole family is showing up there, and, and ultimately what's here is a picture of protection for his family. Um, and, and we see this in verses 3 and 4, because no doubt cave life was not conducive to David's parents' well-being. They would have been advanced in age uh, by this time. And so David arranges a place for them to be safe. He actually makes an arrangement with the king of Moab to allow his parents to stay there. And David does, he says to the king, let him stay here until I know what God will do for me. So David's still exercising this posture of trust, uh, but along with trusting, he's very practical, which is a whole other lesson for us, but we can meditate on that. uh, Trusting in the Lord doesn't do away with our practical decision-making. He needs to see to his parents' safety. Um, If you remember the book of Ruth, uh, David's great-grandmother Ruth was from Moab. Uh, So David has Moab blood in his veins. Um, now, Moab, they, they were historically enemies of Israel in so many ways. In fact, Saul's been fighting against them. We can read about that in chapter 14. But here David goes to them. Maybe he's capitalizing on his family connection there. Uh, maybe he just is going there as a, as a well-known now enemy of Saul and figures they'll have him in uh, because, because he's against Saul, who's been so against Moab. Who knows the exact reason? That, but he goes there, and he secures a safe place for his family uh, while Saul is still on the prowl trying to, trying to kill David. So we put all that together, and we just are asking the question, what is God's king really like? And, and I have to read something like that, and I think, well, he's just so different from me. Because what, what would I uh, be tending to do in David's situation? I wonder what you would be tending to do in David's situation. Wouldn't it be very easy to become very self-focused in David's situation? You know, it's, it's nice that my family's here. I'm glad to see you. I mean, it's not, it's not Christmas yet, but okay, I guess you can come. You know, we're, we're all going to be around each other here. That's nice. But I've really got this stuff I've got to deal with right now. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm living in a cave. 
So things haven't been going very well for me, and I just need to focus on me for a little while and get some of this stuff sorted, and then that would very much be a temptation that, that, that we can easily face as we're going through the thick of it and somebody comes to us needing our care, but that's not what God's king is like. God's king is not uh, focused on himself. God's king is completely different, and he's consumed, first of all, uh, with, his, with the protection of those who belong to him. And, and of course, this, this uh, expression of the king's protection, this climaxes with what we know about Jesus. Even, even uh, in the midst of the story of Jesus there dying on the cross, what happens at the cross where Jesus is in the throes of the pain of that event? There he is absolutely in the throes of the pain, bearing our sin as he dies our, our, the death we deserve on the cross. And what does Jesus say in the midst of his own deeply wilderness-like experience there on the cross? Some of his final words. Well, he says to his disciple John, behold your mother. And he says to his mother Mary, behold your son. What does Jesus do? He cares for his mother in the context of his dying breath. He protects his own. He makes sure that she's going to be cared for. Jesus sees to the needs of his mother. Because this is who God's king is. Those, those who belong to him, those who are his family, he protects them. Which gives us great cause for rejoicing when we also recognize he calls us brothers and sisters. We're part of the family of Christ. And I wonder how often uh, you occupy your mind uh, with, with the protection of Jesus for you. Ultimately, He's protected us in the biggest way from the grip of death. We know we'll pass through death. Death will not have the final word in our life because Christ has shielded us from that by His own death on the cross, paying the penalty for our eternal condemnation. He's, he's saved us from the threat of eternal death. There's no safety as great as that. But Jesus also keeps us safe in other ways. He, he, he keeps us safe through prayer. You ever think about that? In John 17, what, what does he pray in that high priestly prayer? I pray that you wouldn't take them out of the world, Father, but that you would keep them from the evil one. He prays that we would be preserved from the devil's schemes. He's praying for us. That's how he protects us. And not just that, but, but Jesus gathers us into his family. That's where we're part of, of all those metaphors in the Scripture, the, the family of God, the kingdom of light, the body of Christ, all those different metaphors the body uses to speak about the fact that Jesus has gathered His people together. We're protected as Jesus doesn't leave us to ourselves, but brings us together with His people. And this is something we felt acutely, obviously in the last couple of years, but, but isolation presents a unique kind of danger in our lives. We know this. And instead of leaving us alone, as the psalmist puts it, the Lord sets us down in families. We're here in the local family of the people of God, even at Christ Church, we're here. And that's not just a Sunday morning thing, that's a protection that comes from Jesus' thing. It's not safe to be alone in this life of faith. We need one another. So Jesus protects us in that way. He gathers us. And how about just in the fact He speaks to us? Through the Scriptures preached, through the Scriptures read, uh, we're told in some very specific places like Romans 10 that we're hearing the voice of Christ from the Scriptures. So through the Scriptures, Jesus speaks. His Word comes, and what does it do? What's well, a Word of life? Even as Paul will say in Romans 8 how Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus is like our older brother making sure we're okay as He speaks to us. Younger brother, younger sister, I don't think you should be, don't do that. Don't do that. You need to be doing this instead. Right? Come over here and find life. Don't go that way. That way is death. The Lord speaks to us through His Word and points us in the direction of true life. He protects us by His Word. And so as we think about these kinds of things, we can revel in the fact that God's King is like this. He's not one who leaves His own. He's not one who's self-centered and doesn't remember His own, but He's the one who protects His own. He keeps us in His care. He secures us through His sacrifice and then through His praying. You know, Jesus is continually interceding for you. 
That's what Hebrews tells us. Right now, Jesus, before the throne of God, is praying for your well-being, which is an amazing thought to have. He cares for us. He protects us. I need protecting. You need protecting. Reflecting on life in general, I could have easily been in dangerous places where the roving bands of Philistines picked me off in different places. But Jesus protects. We know this. We know this in our lives. And we need to praise Him for that. We need to pray to Him continually to do that. Keep us in your care, Lord Jesus. I found that over the years I've just developed this habit uh, when taking the kids to school or watching them go off to school or I'll, maybe I'm walking back down from Llewellyn after dropping the boys off and I, I'll just pray, keep them in your care today, Lord Jesus. It's just a habit that's kind of developed, probably out of desperation and terror, I don't know. But keep, keep them in your care, Lord Jesus. I drop Sophia off at high school, keep her in your care, Lord Jesus. See Ian take off on his scooter at 20 miles an hour down the sidewalk, keep him in your care. Oh, Lord. Uh, but we need to adopt that kind of posture of heart, don't we? There's a, there's a, there's a simple humility that comes with recognizing we can't, we can't keep things safe ourselves. We need the Lord Jesus to protect us. And that is exactly who He is for us. So He protects us. What's God's King really like? He's our protector. And then we'll say just one more thing. Not only is He familiar with the darkness, He's a refuge for the afflicted. He protects those who are His. Finally, God's King is faithful to God's Word in verse 5. Faithful to God's word. Verse 5, we meet this prophet named Gad. Gad is such an interesting character. Even though we hardly know anything about him, Gad is a very interesting character because what we do know is that he's a prophet. Probably came from Samuel's school of prophets. We've interacted with them. We've seen them in the narrative so far. The prophet Gad shows up on the scene. We don't know anything about him. Partly one of the things that tells us in Hebrew narrative is that the first readers, the author of this, would have expected everybody to know about him. We don't have to give a lot of detail because everybody knows about Gad, right? And, and why might we all know about Gad? Well, Gad is interesting in that he's there with David in the cave at the very beginning. And then at the very end of 2 Samuel 23, at the end of David's life, Gad is there again speaking to David still. So Gad's ministry, even though we only have him showing up a couple few times, we're actually told he chronicles David's life. In 1 Chronicles uh, 29, he writes a, uh, an account of David's life. He's a biographer. But this individual is there with David. We, we can put it this way, from, from cave to crown. He's with him the whole time. And here he is for the first time interacting with David. And he comes to David with the word of the Lord. And he says, you need to leave the stronghold and you need to go back into Judah. Um, and and that, that leaves us wondering, what, what stronghold is he talking about? We could go on on that for a while, commentators do. Is David still in Mizpah? That was a, the stronghold city for, for the king of Moab. Maybe David stayed there, but it kind of seems from the language that he left. Is he at the cave of Adullam? That's a little weird because Adullam is in Judah, and the prophet says you need to go to Judah. So if he's in Judah, why is the prophet saying go to Judah? It's a little hard to sort out, except probably he means you need to go further in. At the very least, you need, you need to, to re-enter the land of Judah. Obviously, we know the Lord's purpose for David is not to be removed from the land, but to be in the land as the king. So the prophet is saying you need to go. That's where the Lord is going to do his work. Um, and so, so whatever the case is, we have, we have the prophet telling David to leave this place of relative safety, whatever the stronghold is, a place of relative safety, leave that and go further in to, to this place that's obviously dangerous. It's, it's a call to leave what's safe, go closer to danger, you know, Judah in Israel is where Saul and his, and his assassins are roving about. That's, what, that's where David is told to go. Um, and what does David do? Does he, does he balk at the prophet's word? What, what would you do? What would I do? I find reading these narratives is so interesting, uh, just, just to try to put myself in the narrative. What would I do if that word came to me? What, what, what would I do? Well, Gad, you know. What was your grade in the prophet school again? 
Are you going to see? Or are they, these, these, these directives are a little bit dangerous. I'm not so sure they're matching up with what I'm feeling in my own heart. I might just need to take some time and pray about this. No, David just obeys. The word of the Lord comes to David. David obeys the word of the Lord. That's what God's king does. He goes. So, so when it comes to knowing what God's king is really like, we add this to our list. God's king is completely faithful to God's word, even if it means danger. Which naturally compels us to think about Christ, doesn't it? And the reality of Jesus' ministry. Jesus didn't come to fulfill His own agenda in His ministry, but He came, as He says, to do the will of my Father in heaven. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus faced the greatest earthly danger of His ministry, moments before He's betrayed to the cross, what did He pray? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus subjected Himself to the directives of God the Father, even though it meant danger and death, God's king does God's will. That's what we see David doing. And so so we put all this together. And all these things matter very much in terms of our consideration. And they matter on, on on a large scale as we fit ourselves into the narrative as it's going along here. Because we need to know what God's king is really like amid the pressures that, that are that are being that are being placed upon him. We need to understand what is God's king really going to be like. And we need to know this because so far in the narrative, our only reference point is Saul, and Saul was a disaster. But you see how the writer is setting things up for us to see that David, the Lord's anointed king, is everything anti-Saul, which is something we need to be mindful of because Saul, you remember, he was an, he was an idol object for the people of Israel. You remember that, how back in chapter 8, the Lord said they've rejected me as king. They're asking for Saul as king. So Saul is just this, this idolatry idea that Saul, he's the one who's going to make everything okay. He's the one who's going to bring us to a place of deliverance. He's the one who's really going to lead us out. A king like the nations, he's the one we want. But what did we discover with Saul, especially as we set that in contrast to what we're seeing with David now? How, how about just thinking about the needy around Saul? Well, what was Saul like toward the needy? Well, you remember his army, that whole situation where they were in deep need, his army was, and he wouldn't let them eat until the battle was over just so he could somehow preserve his name in that whole situation. He didn't care for the needy. He afflicted the needy further. Or you think about just general protection. David here, he's protecting his family. What did Saul do? In fact, the last action recorded by Saul up to this point in the narrative, what was it? You remember? Throwing his spear at his son to kill him. He's not protecting his family. He's trying to kill his family. And how about just obeying the word of the Lord in general? Well, the reason Saul has rejected this king is because when the prophet comes to Saul, he totally rejects Samuel's word, the word of the Lord through Samuel. Totally rejects that. Saul is absolutely a disaster because Saul is absolutely the anti-David, the anti-king we need. David comes. David is the refuge for the afflicted. David comes and David is the protector of his family. David comes and David is the one who's obeying the word of the Lord. And in this, we see this juxtaposition. What is God's true king really like? Well, those things we might otherwise put our trust in, those things constantly are letting us down. God's king is the one in whom we find refuge and a place to belong and a place to continue on in a way of life instead of death. And so we're reminded by a passage like this that the orientation of our heart can be adjusted in such a way that those things that might be shiny, those things that might have big promises and seem like, oh, that's going to be the real relief in life that I need, those things they don't satisfy, they oppress. But in coming to Christ and coming to God's final king, we find the one who not only embraces us for all we are, which is not all wonderful and sunshine. He embraces us knowing all we are. And not only that, but he gathers us in and protects us and cares for us and keeps us. And nothing can remove us from his love. So we consider these five verses as they point us forward, especially to Christ. And we find a great deal of encouragement. 
This, this is who God's king is, and David gives us a picture of that. Jesus comes and fulfills that, the climactic substance of what, of what all of this is. And so we just we check our hearts by it. Are you bitter of soul this morning? Come to the one who knows about that. Bitter of soul, come, come to the one who protects. Come to the one who, who speaks refreshing words of life. This is who Jesus is for us, which is, which is why we'll sing the song we're going to sing in a moment. My hope is built on what? A whole bunch of miscellaneous stuff that I hope will satisfy? No, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not. Hear the hymn writer warn himself? <laughs> I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so we're refreshed in that truth uh, by our passage today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do praise you for the <clears throat> sufficiency of Jesus, the fact that he takes us in, the fact that he protects us, the fact uh, that he is the one who fulfilled your purposes perfectly and without sin. Uh, we pray that we would trust in him and find the refuge we need. Renew us in that this morning. Uh, for those who, who, have, who have felt their need for refuge, may that be a, a point of recalibration for their hearts even today, that there would be renewed rest, a, a promise of peace that can come through the Lord Jesus. We need that this morning, O oh Lord, and we ask for that mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.